although being a feminist culture can feel very estranging and even lonely, I, I always think of it as a collective action. And that's something that we do not just for ourselves, but for others. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And honestly, Unladies, I feel like I should not be opening this episode because it's a special one that's basically hosted by our fabulous intern, Annalie Anonye. Annalie, hello. I gotta pass you the mic already. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me again on the podcast. Well, thank you. You today are interviewing a feminist writer and scholar, Sarah Ahmed, about her 11th, if I'm counting right, 11th book, The Feminist Killjoy Handbook. And for this special occasion, I have even brought with me my mug. Oh, I love it. You've got the perfect angry liberal feminist killjoy mug. I have like the poster behind me in my room too. (laughs) Before though, we get more into the book and you introduce us to Sarah, I got to find out like, how did you come across Sarah and her work and the feminist killjoy handbook? How did you hear about this? Yeah. So this is honestly so full circle. I read Sarah Ahmed in my first feminist class ever. I was a gender studies major undergrad. I took it in one of my favorite professors, Jane Jeffer, in her class. She introduced us to uh, living a feminist life, which is the first time I learned about the feminist killjoy. And I was like 18. And then in her class again, which was like my senior seminar, four years later, we like rounded up with Sarah Ahmed's work. And so she's just been a scholar that I've really admired for a really long time. And then this year, I'm at the University of Cambridge and Sarah Ahmed's partner works at Cambridge. And so I was like, okay, I need to kind of seek her out. (laughs) And um, I went to one of her book signings for this new book. And it was just so incredible that I was like, we need to have her on the podcast. So when you first read about this figure of the feminist killjoy in Living a Feminist Life when you were 18, did that concept immediately resonate with you personally? Oh my goodness, it resonated with me the minute I opened the book. One thing Sarah Ahmed does, which I think is really cool, is in the work she's citing like no white men and like putting preference to marginalized people and all of her research and everything that she does. And I was just like, oh, this is so powerful and amazing. (laughs) Thinking about myself as like a feminist killjoy, I was an undergrad in a department that was tiny. I was in gender studies and I think there were under 10 of us who graduated. And so every time that you say, I'm studying feminist studies, everyone looks at you. And I think that makes you an automatic kind of feminist killjoy. And you're like, oh, well, like, let me go on the defense. It's important. Don't worry. I'm going to have a job someday or something along those lines. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to be able to be like, oh, there's this figure that really kind of means something to me. 
Well, I am so excited for Unladies to meet the feminist killjoy, Sarah Ahmed. Like I mentioned, Sarah is a feminist writer, an independent scholar, and a former professor of race and cultural studies and women's studies. And I mean, truly, like, how does Sarah write so much, Annalie? That was a question that 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 y'all didn't get into, but after seeing like her list of 11 books. Oh my goodness, I agree. It gets more intimidating when you start seeing all the articles and like book forwards <laughs> and everything and you're like how are you writing this much and then giving lectures and just finished a book tour like it's incredible <laughs> yeah I, I thought I thought and talked about feminism a lot no no it's <laughs> nothing compared to Sarah Ahmed so let's get into the interview shall we yes I'm so excited For me, a feminist killjoy is somebody who is willing to get in the way of happiness, uh, to ruin the dinner or the atmosphere because of what they're bringing up, sexism, racism, transphobia, ableism. But the term actually really is a stereotype of feminists, those miserable feminists who make misery their mission, based on the idea that the reason feminists are calling out harassment or bullying or power is because they are sports sports, they don't get the joke because they are miserable and want to make other people miserable. So really in sort of defining the feminist killjoy, we're kind of reclaiming that figure. It has been an anti-feminist trope and we're sort of saying in claiming that figure, well, if talking about sexism, racism makes you unhappy, then we're willing to make you unhappy. It doesn't make unhappiness our cause. It doesn't make misery our mission. But nevertheless, if that's the consequence of the work we do, we're willing to take those consequences. I feel like I've been a feminist killjoy my whole life. Like middle school and high school, I used to be the person in class who would raise my hand and like challenge the professor or something along those lines. And I feel like everyone always hated it. And you you feel that inside of you. But then it's also I just I think it's empowering. And I think that you gave us a name that we could kind of reclaim to that space. Yeah. Sometimes I think it helps to have a name for the work you do. And, uh, you know, yeah. some when you when you put your hand up and you're the person who calls out sexism say or racism in the classroom it can feel like everybody else is participating in something and that you're a problem for everybody else but actually as I've talked to people more and more I've realized that sometimes the people who don't put their hand up don't feel able to or just confident Mm -hmm. enough to do so and so when you do call something out sometimes the people who are silent are grateful for their action do you remember some of your first experiences really feeling like that feminist killjoy? And how did those experiences kind of translate into the feminist killjoy you are today? Well, I definitely think my my journey as a feminist killjoy began at home, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. I begin the handbook with an anecdote about being at the family yeah. table and having my father usually saying something problematic and then trying not to respond and then getting wound up by somebody who was winding me up and then responding and then becoming a problem all over again. And in a way, that table scene was really familiar mm-hmm. because that situation kept happening because my father was the kind of person who would always like test you or push you. Like he knew that I was somebody mm-hmm. who, I don't know why, but from an early age felt compelled to sort of speak out about injustice and sense had a sense of injustice, a sense of what was wrong, but it wasn't me. 
And I think when you're not willing to accept authority, you begin to understand the grammar of authority, how it works, to make those who don't submit to it the cause of their own misfortune, but also the cause of other people's disapprovals. Something I'm thinking about just like from hearing you talk is the fact that a lot of the experiences that you're talking about and kind of making you into this feminist killjoy and the things that you're writing about are very deeply personal to you. And I think about like the idea of the personal being political. And I'm just wondering like the extent to which talking about your own personal experiences and in this book, you're talking about a lot of personal letters and personal anecdotes that other people sent to you, how that kind of plays into your writing and how being this vulnerable and knowing that so many people are reading all of your experiences and all of your challenges in life, how that plays out for you. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there, it can be kind of a vulnerable thing to share Mm -hmm. your own experiences in writing. And it can be um, also a very creative thing because in a way you're turning your experiences into a source of knowledge or you're thinking from yourself and with yourself. And I think I learned from Audre Lorde more than anyone else that actually sometimes to really develop a, a critical relationship to the world is to actually think from the things that are hardest about our own experience, perhaps the experiences that we had that shattered our sense of who we are and our sense of confidence and trust in the world. So to bring them into writing is also to find a sense of purpose, a sharpness and illumination from from what is hardest. So when I think about bringing the personal into writing, I'm I'm sort of thinking, you know, yes, the experience, the anecdote matters, but it's also a, a kind of interpretive act. It's also a way of making sense of something, which is why when Audrey Lord talks about in one of her articles, sexism and racism as grown-up words, there is so much wisdom in that because it teaches us that we experience so many forms of political and social power before we can name what we experience. And so then returning to that past with these words allows you to see what you didn't see at the time. So I think of the personal in writing as a way of revisiting ourselves, illuminating something about ourselves, but also changing our relationship to the world, making sense of the world, making sense of what might at first have seemed really, very difficult and confusing. And I think that for me as a reader, I remember I did critical theory as a PhD student. And, you know, I I love theory and I love concepts and words. But it wasn't until I read Black Feminist Work and Feminist of Colour Work where the personal is not not there. (laughs) Like you're in the the people are in the text. They're not just theorising at a distance. And, And reading that writing just changed my relationship to writing because I... Said I just got more from it when the theoretical work was closer to the skin, as I described it in Living a Feminist Life. That kind of plays into my next question, which is asking about the format of this book as a trade book published outside of the Academy, which is kind of new for you. So I was just wondering what is important about this being a handbook for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it was important to, to me to write a trade book, mainly because a trade book can be cheaper. 
I wanted to write a book that was more accessible. My work in the university, or at least in the classroom, as it's traditionally understood. So I wanted to find a way of sending out feminist work that wasn't going directly into the university classroom that would be more widely available. And I thought I would do that with the feminist killjoy because that I think of a handbook as a hand, you know, as a helping hand, an outstretched hand, um, perhaps also a handle, a way of holding onto something. Because without any question. And that was implied in your your description of being the person who puts the hand up in the class. You know, it can be tiring and exhausting being the one who points to the problem because you become the problem. To expose a problem is to pose a problem. That can be tiring and exhausting. And I think that we need handbooks partly to recognise the costs of the labour of doing this work. Um, and one of the things I think that's different in the handbook to other places that I have brought the feminist killjoys to life is that in the handbook I'm also talking about what being a killjoy gives back to you. Yes, it takes a lot of time and energy. It can be frustrating and estranging, but it can also be how we acquire knowledge and insights, skills that we need to make sense of cultural objects and cultural materials. It can be how we express ourselves. It can be how we connect to other people. It can be how we find our people. And ladies, have you heard of Cozy Earth? I'll tell you someone who has. Oprah. That's right. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's Favorite Things five years in a row. And guess what? It's on my favorite things now, too. Cozy Earth crafts luxury goods that transform your lifestyle. We're talking bedding, loungewear, and bath essentials that are so soft you have to feel it to believe it. And it's also durable. All products come with a 10-year warranty. Cozy Earth Bedding is temperature regulating and is available in viscose from bamboo and in linen. And when I tell you that the Cozy Earth sheets on my bed right now have made me feel just swaddled in silky smooth comfort. I'm also loving my bamboo stretch knit pocket tee designed to be effortless and free flowing and get this helps prevent night sweats. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about night sweats, but listen, I need some help with my night sweats and finally Cozy Earth is here. Cozy Earth has also provided an exclusive offer for unladies today. We're talking up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code unladylike. So head to CozyEarth.com and check out their bedding, loungewear, and bath essentials and enjoy up to 35% off site-wide with the code UNLADYLIKE. Cozy Earth, I'm telling you, it is amazing. One thing that I was thinking about while reading is that I think the feminist killjoy is something that we embody, but you also kind of framed her as like a separate entity. And a way that you did that, what I which I loved, was the feminist killjoy like takes on she her pronouns throughout the book. And I was really curious about this choice. Does that kind of help frame the person who becomes a feminist killjoy for you, or do you feel like that like might be resistance to other theoretical frameworks that use he him pronouns? I was really curious about that choice. One of the things I do in the handbook is say that sometimes you embody the feminist killjoy and you feel like you are the feminist killjoy. And mm-hmm. in a way, because somebody who uses she, her pronouns, 
when I'm talking about embodying the feminist killjoy, then the feminist killjoy has the pronouns that I use. In fact, in the last time I talked about the feminist killjoy, which is in <laughs> Manchester, the Whitworth Gallery, um, I said, actually, fem- feminist killjoy, she, her, but for other people, <laughs> the pronouns will be different because their pronouns are different. So in, in a way, I wanted the kind of the story, the feminist killjoy's genealogy, like her family history, becomes embedded yeah. in our own family history and our own ways of wanting to be addressed. But I also talk about the feminist killjoy as exterior. And that's actually quite an important part of the handbook, that even when you claim to be the feminist killjoy, the feminist killjoy is exterior to you. So in becoming the feminist killjoy, you're taking on a persona that has a history that precedes you and, perfectly frankly, will outlast you as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that really matters. So one time I got a letter from a student. He said, you know, I'm a feminist killjoy. And I think this is how they put it. I didn't know these words described everything I've always been all my life. And there is that moment almost of euphoric identification. Ah, yes, that's me. In fact, somebody else wrote that to me. That's me. (laughs) But I think it's very, very important that we don't collapse ourselves into that figure and assume that we are always a feminist killjoy because in some situations we can be the ones who are positioning other people as killjoys, as getting in their way of our happiness. So the exteriority of the killjoy is also a kind of political promise um, it's a way of recognising that the killjoy will arrive into a room before we are, the killjoy will leave the room after we do, and that not assuming we are them always, in a way, is, a le- is telling us that the killjoy isn't just about getting in the way of other people's happiness, that the killjoy can also involve the harder work of sometimes having to get in the way of our own joy, mm-hmm. that w- it can be our own joy that we have to kill. Something you did really incredibly in the book was talk about times that you didn't live up to the standard of feminist killjoy that you thought you wanted to at different points. And I was wondering maybe advice that you had for our listeners who are kind of aspiring to be this feminist killjoy and want to (laughs) enact it in their everyday lives, but don't feel like they're always living up to it. I think being willing to have your own joy killed is a hard Mm -hmm. thing. And I know, and in a way, when I think back to when I was doing, you know, feminist work at a university, I would say that one of the really significant issues that I, it took me too long to really deal with was access and disability justice. And it's only the painstaking labour, in particular of disabled PhD students, who had to keep pointing out to me, well, Sarah, you know, the access information should be on the conference program. It should be on everything that you're doing that I began to really take it on and take it in. And it's totally changed, you know, how I think about spaces and events. So that that would be one example. So what I've noticed is that sometimes people can get quite defensive. So they can say, oh, I can't do everything. I can't, you know, enable everyone to be in this space. And defensiveness is, is a really serious issue. We tend to be defensive when we're hearing criticism, but that's the way personalised as something that ought to be understood as a public and social issue. So if someone's being critical of how you're organising or how you're writing or what you're doing, don't be defensive, just just listen and reflect. And, and that time that you take, the time to take on and to take in somebody else's complaint is time that's creating something better for you and for your community and in fact, that's one of the killjoy troops of the handbook. So I will say, so, so that, that means that killing joy is often really about the work that you have to do on yourself to admit the realities that are going on around so many of us in these institutions where there's 
a hierarchical institution, there's often a naturalisation of harassment and that's very, very hard to work through. The other is that um, when I was doing the research on complaint, so many of the students and early career scholars in particular I spoke to would, would, would talk about how they would try and tell people, colleagues, peers, supervisors, mentors, about what was happening that was painful or difficult, perhaps harassment, perhaps bullying, and people didn't want to know. <laughs> And they didn't want to know because they didn't want to know something that would compromise their own relationships to a person or a project or a program or institution. So they didn't want to have their own joy kill because they were invested in maintaining a positive relationship to something or to somebody. And that's that's really, really important for us to know this, that actually a lot of feminists who might be against harassment, you know, as a political principle, when they're called upon to actually do something in their own institutions, close the door. Yeah. And you led in perfectly to one of the ideas that I really wanted to ask you about, this idea of performative activism and kind of taking on the idea of like the killjoy and the feminist killjoy, but in a performative way and not pushing the boundaries. I actually wanted to quote you. Feminist killjoys do not disappear when we create feminist spaces. To talk about racism within feminism is to get in the way of feminist happiness. And I was kind of just wondering maybe if you could elaborate on how feminist killjoys can even kill joy in feminist spaces and how you embody being a feminist killjoy, even in a place where you're thinking like, oh, this is going to be the most feminist space, like everyone's on my side, and you're continually questioning I think they they can be some of the hardest experiences when you become a feminist killjoy in the sense of a killer of feminist joy. I have learned so much from reading Black feminists, feminists of colour and Indigenous feminists about those sorts of experiences in feminist spaces. And the one I really, really particularly want to mention is Aileen Morton Robinson, an Australian Aboriginal feminist whose work has been with me since I was... Um, since my very first books, I've been engaged with Aileen's work. And she just has this incredible description in the set, the new edition of her landmark text, Talking Up to the White Woman, which is based on her um, work on, you know, how whiteness operates in Australian feminism. And I'm telling you, whiteness operates in Australian feminism. <laughs> and she talks about how she was invited to this decolonizing feminism panel. And, you know, in the blurb for that panel, her... Um, her contribution to Australian feminism is described through the language of Aileen Morton Robinson took a sledgehammer, you know, to feminist community. Like the violence of this description of her contribution or almost a rendering of her contribution as kind of violence, breaking apart the sense of we that previously one assumes had existed. And Aileen talks about how, you know, becoming the angry, black-tempered, black feminist, bad-tempered black feminist, um, what that meant, you know, in a panel supposedly set up to decolonise feminism. So in those spaces, it's supposedly set up not to reproduce the same thing. The same thing is being reproduced, and there she is, yet again cast as the one who is causing division by pointing to vision. So that's just a Aileen, Aileen has taught me so much about how that operates and, and, and the way in which it keeps operating, even when people are apparently trying not to do that they are still doing that because the habits of whiteness, I mean, I, I, people often talk about white fragility, well, people, some people. So and I, I think of whiteness much more in terms of resilience, what tends to keep its shape or to hold its shape despite everything, despite all that work. And Audre Lorde said this would happen in A Master's Tools and Never Dismantle a Master's House. She, she says that 
the those who only quote unquote only get their resources from the master's house will find those who are trying to dismantle it threatening that's lord's word and that in a way is lord's work and and i think you know pointing to racism within the feminist community pointing to harassment as an institutional problem they might seem like distinct acts not necessarily coming from the same place but i actually think they're telling us something about the problem of feminist interests being identified with an allegiance to a prior set of relations of power whether that's whiteness um bourgeois culture or the institutional structures of different organizations such as universities in your research you talked about how like especially for queer killjoys and people of color killjoys a lot of times their existence just makes them killjoys so being in spaces they're already embodying that work if they want to or if they don't want to what is the burden of being a feminist killjoy like maybe when you don't even want to and you're always showing up as a killjoy i mean i think that's actually really important that i mean a lot of the examples i've used have been about what you say or what you do i mean maybe it's sometimes about what you don't do you might not smile or you might not laugh at a sexist or racist joke and that's enough to be a killjoy but sometimes being a killjoy is not even about what you don't do let alone what you do do sometimes it's enough (laughs) to turn up bringing the killjoy up Mm. is because you turn up, because you embody something. Your body brings something that people don't want to acknowledge or to recognise. Like, you just get in the way. I do recognise that that can be exhausting and that sometimes, you know, you do need to to stop. To, to And that might mean not going into certain environments, not going into certain rooms or not just not, 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 not being the one who turns up. And I think that's, that's important. Um, remember, there's only so much you can do. But the other one that's related, actually, is um, know that it's not always up to you. Because sometimes even when the killjoy seems to stick to us, we can feel that if there's something we do, we can somehow minimise the impact of that. Like we maybe if we tone it down or maybe if we're extra smiley or maybe if we don't ever use the word race or maybe if we talk about diversity or all of these different ways in which we almost like compensate for the killjoyness of our being, uh, they don't work mostly. Or even if they do work, the problem with them is that it can then make you feel that you're responsible for the effects that you have on others, which can actually create more weight. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to know that it's just not up to you. Killing joy sometimes is, is nothing to do with what you do. So although in a way that sounds like more of a burden because it's like you can't turn it on and off in some ways, it's less, it lessens the burden because then you begin to see that actually it's, it, it doesn't start with you, that the problem lies elsewhere. And then you begin to identify the dynamics that keep following you around as being telling you something about the world rather than yourself. And, that, and there can be a freeing in that sometimes you need to feel the weight of something to be freed of it. I love this line. It was candles and bubble baths versus self-care. Um, because I think like sometimes the idea of like self-care, self-preservation kind of gets appropriated. And I was kind of wondering just in your own life or just for listeners, ways that you think that we should be taking self-care when we take on the burden or the joy of being a feminist killjoy. I mean, I learn. I learn so much from Audrey Lord, and and she actually uses self care. I think she. Calls, I think the only way she she phrases it is caring for oneself. 
But self-care has become a little bit like a a cliche. And, you know, I think many other Mm. uh, writers have pointed to the limits of self-care and how it can easily be, well, quite consistent with the whole neoliberal focus on the self as the object of political work. And, you know, we are doing our political work to change the world. So putting putting the self as the object isn't isn't going to go very far. But I, I really also wanted to show, and this has been true probably for quite a while, how, how easily so much work is dismissed by other people as self-care, as just an example of being self-indulgent. I mean, you can hear in Audre Lorde's account that she's aware that some of what she's describing could be dismissed as being self-indulgent. When she says, no, it's not, it's self-preservation. She's writing about her experiences of having of having cancer, but she's describing cancer in relationship to anti-black racism. Like if you experience the world as attacking you, as undermining your immune system, as compromising your capacity to live, then looking after yourself is a refusal of that world. It's saying no to it. No, I will not disappear. No, I will not think of myself as unworthy so it's kind of like the 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 resist there's so much resistance in her emphasis on on looking after oneself but that resistance is not a kind of like about me as being apart from other people for for lord and i'm thinking as well of many of the black feminist writers who draw on her work so beautifully especially alex's pauline gum's amazing book undrowned that actually to preserve oneself in the face of this violence, the violences of histories that can beat the body like weather in the present, that then actually being oneself is a profoundly communal gesture. It depends upon Mm. others. Much of the book, I think, is ultimately a critique of quote-unquote happiness. So I'm thinking specifically about Feminist Killjoy as a cultural critique, just Feminist Killjoys in general um, refusing to laugh at jokes that aren't funny. I'm curious, are Feminist Killjoys just doomed to a life without happiness? Are we not allowed to have fun? Which I think is something that people always like throw out is like, well, like, can't you just laugh this off? Can't we just have fun for like one day without coming in with this horrible critique if you're just going to see a movie or something along those lines. And I was wondering, like, maybe how you strike a balance in your life. It is one of my killjoy maxims is when it's not funny, don't laugh. I'm sort of partly responding to the constant injunction to laugh things off, to laugh it off, to laugh about it, to make to make that these forms of power and oppressive relations, I think you need the press of oppression, to make them smaller than they are. And that that's so normalised that often so many of the forms of power and violence that we're trying to question and transform are made smaller by this injunction to keep laughing and to keep laughing them off. But, I mean, feminists are amongst the funniest people I know, and there's a lot of (laughs) humour and laughter in feminist community. And And I think these are not unrelated sort of dynamics. Don't laugh it off doesn't mean don't laugh. It means actually sometimes one of the funniest things is being able to reveal and share 
a relationship to something that ordinarily isn't seen. The feminist killjoy, you might be pleased to know, this doesn't mean you have to be really miserable. (laughs) It's more Mm. that you become aware of how happiness operates to bring with it a particular kind of idea of what a life should be. I just want you to be happy. My mother always used to say this Mm. to me, usually when I was doing something that she didn't approve of, just be happy, go and do whatever you want. But it seems to be saying also, so don't do that because that would make you unhappy or that would make me unhappy with you. And so so often happiness becomes not about freedom but about, but about duty. And, and knowing that is actually quite helpful because it kind of releases us a little bit from this sort of sense of obligation to make the happiness of others our primary social task, which isn't to say that we've become indifferent to the happiness of others. Being part of a social world is feeling up when other people are up and down when they're down. But you become aware, you know, of what happiness can be doing as a way of pushing you in a certain direction. And for queer people especially, you know, happiness can come with it an expectation that you will follow a straight trajectory and it's the 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 fear that being queer means being unhappy is one that can feel like pressure so actually sort of understanding how happiness works I think it can be quite freeing but it, it also avoids a problem where you have to be happy to prove that it's okay to be who you are Yes, is the answer to the question. As feminist killjoys and queer killjoys, we do have happiness and light and humour and laughter and joy. We just don't want to make them what we're aiming for. Because as soon as you start aiming for a positive relation, then the killjoy becomes the one who gets in the way, which I think actually would get in the way of our own hopes for happiness. In all your work, you really heavily stress reading like as this feminist killjoy tool and empowerment through books and through like just educating yourself, which I I think is like something that sometimes like in this modern feminist movement, like maybe we're missing is like going back to the text, going back to theory. And I was wondering where you get that empowerment from reading. And then on top of that, anything you think that our listeners should be reading right now, in addition, of course, to your book. Well, I'll be really, um, it will be a killjoy joy if you picked up the feminist killjoy handbook. And I'm never not <laughs> grateful whenever somebody reads something of mine. I mean, it's not obligatory, obviously, but it, but it is an incredible to be part of a community of readers and writers. For me, when I think about feminist texts, I, I love the image that um, Shuri Moraga in the preface to the fourth edition of This Bridge Called My Back, in her preface Catching Fire, she describes copies of that book, that much-loved, much-read book, how they were, like, worn and weathered, <laughs> uh, you know, how they got marked by users and the pages stained and... And I love that idea that books tell tales and carry traces of past readers and that when they pass through hands, they change our hands. For me, it's a really important way of thinking about the social lives of feminist texts. You know, I think maybe when you go to university, you're encouraged to think about a book as what you read to get an information from an argument. Oh, I mean, I've told students this before too. What is the argument they're making? And you're looking at the text as a, as, as a depository, as, as, as depositing information, you know, and um, I really like the idea of that books themselves as objects that bring together a result of many histories. That's so much it has to happen for a book to happen. And then the book goes out and it, moves around and it does things and it goes places. One of the joys of feminist teaching is being part of that transformational process when you witness what a book can do. Like I, as as a teacher, I I read um, with students Audrey Lord every year because I knew how 
Lord's work had impacted me when I first read her work as a PhD student in Cardiff in, in 1992 or 1993. So I always wanted to teach that work and I would just watch the transformation that would happen. And and I remember reading like kind of more revolutionary feminist work, something like Shalima Firestone's Dialectic of Sex. The ideas are about this is a family and we could abolish it. Or <laughs> all the things that are so often just made natural, like inevitable, become something that you can question. It's just how freeing that was and how 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 you felt from these books that written some of them by such young women. It was such it's such a gift to be given that. Mm-hmm. And I know when I taught feminism, especially in the latter part of my academic career, that students really loved the feminist work that was radical in that way, radical at its root, that was saying that we could do redo everything. Recommended reading. There, there are just so many amazing works. And I've mentioned Audre Lorde. I mentioned Bell Hawks. Um, Judith Butler is hugely important to me, like reading Gender Trouble when I was an undergraduate. Like, oh, actually, um, first year of my PhD was just a, an amazing thing. But I, there are a couple I, I would point to that probably are texts that are less well-known. One would be Amata Ayadu's Asses to Killjoy. That mm-hmm. was written and in, 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 published in 1977. It's, it's a novel. Sissy is Asses to Killjoy. She's our narrator. And she travels from Ghana to Frankfurt, Germany, to London, England, having Killjoy encounters. And it's the first mm-hmm. book, really, to give the Killjoy a voice. And I had referred to it in my first book on the feminist Killjoy, which the feminist Killjoy had a chapter, The Promise of Happiness. But I think I realised as I was writing the handbook that I hadn't given enough weight to the significance of that work and how important it is. And one of the things I really noticed when I was doing the reading for the handbook is the way in which Our Sister Kildra had influenced other, um, especially black feminists who are writing about colonialism and its afterlives and doing critiques of happiness as well. And one one example would be Michelle Cliff that I mentioned in the Feminist Killjoy's Poet chapter. And she talks about how she was really influenced by Our Sister Killjoy with its rage against colonialism and how it encouraged her to redirect rage into creativity. And so I, I, I would pick the one book, um, Asses to Killjoy, as my recommended reading, but I would also uh, encourage people to sort of look at the ways in which, if they pick a one book, how that book then has had these afterlives because of how it gets cited and drawn upon, how it energises others to take up their pen and to write against the world in order to create a different world. I just love that. Thank you. For anyone listening, you're missing. Sarah has the best bookcase behind her. It's so many books. <laughs> yeah, I live in a really old um, cottage in Cambridgeshire, which is, it's got wonky walls, you know, and, and it, it's got beams. So yeah. you can't have conventional bookshelves. You have to have a queer version of bookshelves. So <laughs> actually my partner, Sarah, she made these little sort of small bookshelves for me that will fit between all these like, beams and wonkiness. Hence the collection behind me. <laughs> I've had enough. Annalie, it was so fun being a fly on the wall, fly in the fly in the zoom <laughs> <laughs> for your conversation with Sarah. How did it feel getting to talk to her and talk about feminist killjoys? Okay, not gonna lie, I fangirled a little bit. This was like, I was so excited. It's so weird to think of someone that you've read for so long to be like on a Zoom call with you. So that was incredible. (laughs) 
I think like that final takeaway means so much to me. I, I kept thinking about the importance of reading and getting to the literature. I think, especially as someone who considers myself a feminist scholar, I always love that in her books is she like is so invested in telling you to get into feminist work. I think it gives you the tools and especially this being a handbook, it gives you the tools to fight the patriarchy being like, oh, like, let me listen to these statistics. Let me read all these scholars. Let me take care of myself as like the conversation about self-care is so important. I think about so many times that I see like your mug or like a feminist killjoy sweatshirt (laughs) or a feminist killjoy sticker. You see all that all the time. And I wonder how many people actually even connect it to Sarah is like, I feel like you get this concept and it just keeps like moving and reappropriating. I think that's really powerful. You do get into this in your interview with Sarah, but I also wanted to ask you separately. One thing that Ahmed underscores is how women of color are often stereotyped and positioned as killjoys by white feminists in feminist spaces specifically. Is that something that you've also had to deal with as a feminist killjoy? You know, it's so funny because I think that I deal with it more now that I'm getting older. I think like Mm. my feminism as a young child and like when I got into the feminist spaces when I was like maybe like nine or ten was really white feminist as a black woman, which I think is like kind of like interesting. It's just the fact that I think the people who really got me into feminism were white women. And like that was kind of like the space that I think I was championing. And then I think as I get older, especially as I started taking like a lot of black studies and African studies courses, Mm. I a lot of times can't see feminism as separate from thinking about racism and thinking about homophobia and all of those different things. And I think now when people make like broad statements or I see stuff on Twitter or stuff along those lines where I'm like, hey, well, like this isn't really inclusive. A lot of times I do feel like a bit of a feminist killjoy because you're like, okay, well, like, can't you just like bandwagon for the cause? And you're like, wait, the cause should be inclusive. So I think I kind of go back and forth. Yeah. Okay. And ladies, feminist killjoys, we want to hear from you. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send us your emails, voice memos. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. You can and should absolutely follow Sarah Ahmed on Instagram at Sarah No Ahmed, on Twitter at Sarah N Ahmed, or go to her website, sarahnahmed.com. And Annalie, where can people find you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram. My handles for both are Annalie and Anya. And on ladies, if you want to support an independent feminist podcast, if you want to, you know, tip your feminist killjoy, head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia to join the unladies room. It's $5 a month or more. You get an extra bonus episode every week, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, including Sarah Ahmed, who you just heard, as well as my deepest love and gratitude. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh my gosh. It's a very hard question for me to answer because I don't really think of myself as very ladylike. Um, 
Hmm. What is the most unladylike? Probably because of how I use my voice. I don't, I don't think I'm very ladylike mm-hmm. in how I use my voice. But, but to be honest, I'm not really sure what it would mean to be ladylike. Having never been a lady, I've never really been like a lady. But when I think about being a lady, I think more about speaking in a certain kind of um, careful and gentle and polite way. And I don't think I speak like that. So I would choose that. <laughs>